Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. So this is Dr. Dan, and uh, we're in the midst of an incredible discussion between Bob Kaplan and David Wilson. Bob Kaplan, who approaches climate change from a more industrial um, and regulation view uh, point of view, and David Wilson, a teacher who spent 28 years teaching kids science in school. We've brought up some points that I think need to be discussed a little bit more. When we talk about decarbonizing and uh, Earth decarbonizing the atmosphere of Earth, and we talk about carbon dioxide being a poison gas, I think anyone who has taken third grade science should know that's a bunch of baloney, wouldn't you say so, David? I would say so, Dr. Bob. Uh, I was just talking about the cycle of carbon the other day. I teach night school also, and we, uh, it, it, to me it's regrettable that uh, they demonize the carbon atom, and it is essentially the element of life. Without it, you have no life. And we were discussing it with a student, and we were going over the photosynthetic reaction, the formula, the equation. And then I showed the student that, you know, the absorption of the the water uh, in the presence of sunlight will produce uh, the uh, sugar molecule, and it will also give off a waste gas of oxygen. So that's basic information for the kid to know on photosynthesis. But I asked the student, I said, what do you get when you turn this equation around? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, just look at it backwards. And what you get is respiration. And so the plant also goes through respiration. And so you have the burning of sugar in the presence of oxygen is going to give off carbon dioxide. So are we talking about an evil tree now because it's given off carbon dioxide? And the issues that I'm looking at from a teacher's position is that they have taken the carbon dioxide, they've made it into uh, an enemy that we've got to absorb or to control or destroy. And I regret that because the kids are fairly open to about anything because they look at adults as the authority figures. And when you tell them something, they pretty much accept it. So I'm looking at high school kids. I'm thinking maybe they haven't been through proper training and they've not had an alternative point of view. And by the time they get to university level, they've got some fairly radical people telling these guys that they're students that, yes, this really is bad and really bad things are going to happen. Well, you know, of course, that the, the most important greenhouse gas 
in the atmosphere is water vapor. That's correct, it's it, water vapor. It absorbs seven times as much uh, heat as uh, carbon dioxide or anything else for that matter. So, Well, it's, uh, Dr. Dan, you're right about so many things, but it's closer to 90% due to water vapor. And uh, it's interesting, the big three. I will accept that because it really goes in favor of what I believe anyway. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm very reluctant to correct my mentor, you know. So, But um, anyhow, not only is water vapor the number one gas, uh, carbon dioxide, well, going back, water vapor cycle is driven by Mother Nature. Now, we do water our lawns. You know, we do take water out of wells, and we have pivot irrigation for uh, agriculture. But that is dwarfed by what the ocean evaporates and, and comes back down. Well, if we look at carbon dioxide, Mother Nature dwarfs what we're putting out. There used to be, if you go, uh, you can still maybe find it um, on the internet, but you look up the carbon cycle, and you'll see there's a cycle between carbon dioxide and the ocean coming out, coming out. Uh, some of the carbon dioxide becoming carbonates and settling to the uh, floor. Some of it's used by the shellfish to make shells. Um, and we don't predominate. It's, it's Mother Nature in that. If you look at methane, that's another one of the greenhouse gases they're, they're going after. Again, even with the leaky pipelines and everything like that, because of decomposition in the soils and, and things like that, uh, methane, we're not the number one. And the fi final one is nitrous oxide. And even though the dentists you know, use it to make people happy to get their teeth pulled out, uh, Mother Nature uh, predominates in that also. So just that part, if you just look at the basic chemistry and what drives chemistry, um, you know, the more you have of something, the more it drives. So it's obviously to me that since we are minor players in all of these major greenhouse gases, not very likely that we're driving the ship. Uh, Bob, I'd like to mention something, too, since you brought uh, climate sensitivity up and uh, us being a player in it. Uh, one of the big topics that they are uh, throwing at us is that the Earth's climate is very sensitive. It's almost, it almost reminds me of a, a feather balance that you blow on it and it moves. Uh, is the Earth and all its climates, and there's more than one climate, but is the Earth climate that sensitive? Uh, when I look at it, I'm looking at historically, you go back to these periods of, you know, the dinosaur period, the Jurassic, the Triassic, Cretaceous, and things like that, and things were relatively stable, and you had massive amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and nothing really terrible happened, and I'm looking at the corals, they survived throughout all the millennia, and so I'm thinking, if man dumps a little bit more CO2 into the air, uh, is it really going to shift the balance that much? Well... Logic tells you, if you look at the chemical equations, that probably not. But one of, one of the things that is happening in science is you've gone from the scientific method, and now you've gone to, this is what I want to do. Let me cherry pick the data to get to where I want to go. Uh, this is compounded by the fact that the UN only looks at very limited information, 
to make these projections, and that's primarily through the computer models, uh, there's a dearth of other sciences in the argument. Uh, you don't have geologists. You don't have archaeologists. You don't have anthropologists. You don't have biologists. You don't have people that can say, well, wait a minute, like this proposal the UN says, well, we may not be able to get the carbon dioxide low enough unless we decarbonize the atmosphere. And you could have a biologist say, well, do you realize that life stops if we get the carbon dioxide down below 160 parts per million? That's correct. And I have also heard that there is an ideal range for plants to live in, and that's around 1,500. And so I keep hearing from my perspective as a teacher, and I keep reading this in the literature, uh, that when this this level that we're at, 400, and it's rising a, a bit, when we hit maybe five or 600, we're in serious trouble. But yet, when we look at the actual numbers of the data from past time periods, we've gone way over that. Well, you do have some tracking of CO2 and temperature, but the question is, which comes first? I always like to use the soda can. I do some lectures sometimes on this, and I ask everyone, I said, if I take a soda can, room temperature, open it at the same time, one that's frosty cold, and open it up, which one loses its fizz first? Now, you have to think about this and uh, try that experiment at home, but I think you'll find that a cold liquid holds more gas than a warm liquid. So uh, when you have the big sink for CO2 is the ocean. So you end up having a warming trend, you're going to have a situation where you're going to change the whole carbon balance. That's correct. There's a, there's a lot of things that they're deliberately not looking at. Uh, just something as simple as how the Southwest has changed, where you had the Anasazi civilizations that were quite amazing, where you had Chaco Canyon, where you had 10,000 people living. They had roadways out to farms where they brought the food in. And then 1,500 years, they just left. And we've tract it says well you know it's real dry here how could they live here well that's why they left and they think they became the pueblo people every pueblo is located on a river because they learned their lesson you know that's very similar to what happened with the vikings in the in the greenland oh yeah yeah they came and for about two three hundred years they had farms they raised uh, domestic animals they had crops and then climate change occurred and they weren't able to do it so they That's picked right. up and left. Yeah, that was an interesting situation because it brings in adaptation, how man can adapt. They started there, if you look at the history, farming. They said, this is like, this is like Denmark and Norway. This is fantastic. Look at all the crops. Got colder and colder. And they said, better raise more sheep. So they raised sheep. They changed their crops. They were trading stuff to the mainland. Then it got even colder, and they said, oh, my gosh, we can't even grow any crops. How are we going to make a living? They said, well, we're going to hunt walrus, sell the tusks, sell the meat. And then finally they said, let's go someplace warm like Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> but the adaptation was pretty remarkable, and man does have the ability to adapt to different environments. 
So this is Dr. Dan, and uh, we're in the midst of an incredible discussion between Bob Kaplan and David Wilson. Bob Kaplan, who approaches climate change uh, from a more industrial um, and regulation view uh, point of view, and David Wilson, a teacher who spent 28 years teaching kids science in school. We've brought up some points that I think need to be discussed a little bit more. You know, it's it, it's interesting you mentioned the Little Ice Age and things of that nature before uh, and the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of people, of course, blame the Industrial Revolution for the start of global warming. Well, I read that the CO2 levels were dangerously low before the Industrial Revolution. And if it weren't for the Industrial Revolution, we might have had a real <laughs> starvation issue. Well, in the UN documents, like I said, it's X-Files. You can find the truth out there someplace. Uh, your crop yields are about 30% higher now than they were uh, before the Industrial Revolution. Part of that is due to fertilizers, but a large part is due to the increased fertilizer in the air, which is carbon dioxide. So we grow Plants grow better, obviously, when it's warmer and they have this carbon dioxide uh, I wanted to mention something that uh, sort of segueing off what you mentioned. Uh, I'm constantly seeing these graphs that associate carbon dioxide fluctuations with temperature and invariably without without any variation in every book and every online article, you'll see graphs of carbon dioxide slowly going up over time. And right along with it, they'll plot temperature. And the kids are being brainwashed into thinking, yeah, look, this is causing an increase in temperature. You know, we're, we're in trouble. So I would do the uh, graph on the board with the kids when I was teaching, and I would say, what does it look like? And they would invariably say, well, it looks like temperature is going up because of carbon dioxide going up. And so I said, look at it from another point of view. How do you know that carbon dioxide is driving temperature? Couldn't it be that the temperature is increasing the carbon dioxide? How do we know it's not? What really goes back, and this is very important for you as a teacher, is that that correlation of lines on a graph doesn't really mean anything unless you prove that they are related. Isn't That's right. that true? That's, that is correct. Uh, it, it goes back, to uh, Dr. Dan, to proving uh, your point, and in science, Problems, in my experience, are never easy. It's 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 easy to bring up arguments. It's easy to discuss things, but it's very difficult to prove things. And this whole issue has been approached as if it's a done deal. There is no argument against it anymore. And if you try to stand up against this kind of thing, you're going to be castrated with this uh, with this uh, issue. Yeah, the confusion between coincidence, correlation, and cause and effect. And if you use the scientific method on what the UN has done, you basically say, you still have a hypothesis here. You do not have enough data. There are too many outliers that, that argue against this because you say it's never been this warm before, but you have geologic. I was at a meeting and I said, there's geologic data that shows it's been warmer. Their crop locations of where you grew grapes in Italy, you now grew, grew them in Germany during the, uh, the warming periods, the medieval and stuff. So now you're back, you're back 
to a situation where we say, well, let's don't even talk about this because that gets our narrative out of whack. And, you know, a narrative is just a fairy tale as far as I'm concerned when you talk about these narratives that you have. You look at the stuff that supports your argument. You get rid of anything that doesn't. We're discussing climate change with Bob Kappelman and David Wilson. Uh, and one of the things, gentlemen, that uh, I've noticed uh, is, um, is that when government gets involved, that's when, that's when the train basically comes off the track. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. So one of the things we can talk about is this Paris Climate Treaty that, that they're trying to force us into. Uh, what are the implications of that? Let's talk about that. Yeah, the climate treaty, uh, most of the world in Europe in particular, it is a treaty. Their legislative bodies have signed it. Uh, they're bound by it. Uh, and here we were introduced as it's the Paris Accord. The reason was uh, the word came back from the Senate, you'll never get this thing passed as a treaty here. Thank goodness. Um but the Paris Accord said, Let, let's get everyone together. We all agree. All the science is settled. Man is doing this. We're, we're changing the climate. Uh, Got to do this to save the planet. And you had politicians making decisions based on, in some cases, faulty science. Some cases they knew it was wrong, but they had other agendas for this. And uh, not to be uh, conspiracy-oriented, but if you read the U.N.'s actual uh, data of what they want to accomplish, uh, what they've said in their policy papers, they're looking to unify the, the whole world uh, to fight climate change and with the U.N. You know, driving the boat. That's why it's a U.N. Uh, inner, uh, you know, panel uh, on climate. It's a U.N.-driven and what comes out, the U.N. science comes out, <clears throat> the U.S. did a, an analysis that uh, the, some of the industry people, and I was one of them, said, okay, the U.S. will do an independent study on this thing to confirm it. And all EPA did was crib sheet off what the U.N. had already done. So, uh, yeah, and the treaty is very onerous. It is very onerous. Uh, right now you're having people, the ones that signed it as a treaty, are now looking at what they have to do. And it is onerous because you're talking about affecting not only emissions but land use, of saying, oh, we've got to return so much land. Oh, this practice produces too much greenhouse gas. You're going to have to eliminate this practice and no one doing the economics on what happens if, in the case, and we, you know, David, I had discussed this earlier before the program, what's happening to the Dutch farmers, where they're basically being told, you have to get rid of so many cows to comply with the treaty, you have to get rid of so much farmland that we need to turn into to forest, and now the people are saying, what in the world have we agreed to? And thank goodness we're in a voluntary mode on this, but we have an administration that says we're going to come high, you know, hell or high water. We're going to do this regardless of what it does to the country. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. 
join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything, everything, everything gonna be 